Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Pascal Sablon as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Pascal Sablon, FAIA, NOMA, Lead ADP, is both an architect and activist as a champion of women and social awareness in the design profession. Just the 315th Black woman architect to attain licensure in the United States her drive has inspired those around her and spurred the network she has built to advocate for themselves and their communities. Pascal was recently promoted to senior associate at Adage Architects in New York City, and she has worked there since 2021. Previously, she was at S9 Architecture. She has served on the AIA New York's board of directors and was appointed to the AIA National Strategic Planning Committee as well. She has also founded Beyond the Built Environment in 2018, which is an organization positioned to address the inequitable disparities in architecture, with programs such as Say It Loud, a series of exhibitions that have profiled nearly 883 diverse designers across the United States. Pascal, thank you so much for being my guest here today on The Anti-Architect. Thank you so much for having me. You do so many things um, beyond just design. Um, and I hope I get them all right here. Um, I've got a whole list of things here to go through. I feel like all I do is just go from meeting to meeting and like dip in and out of things and somehow get through the day and the week. Um, I don't know how you can keep a demanding job and then do all of this extra stuff. So, um, you know, in the intro, I referenced you as an activist architect um, who works in it to advance architecture for the betterment of society, uh, bringing visibility and voice to issues concerning women and diverse designers. Um, can you explain, uh, you know, what what that means for those who may not know? what an activist architect is. So it's a term that I've recently started to define um, in realizing the full uh, identities that I hold as an architect in the profession. Um, and really based off of the idea and understanding that it's not going to only be about the projects that I draw and, and help come to fruition, but it's, a way, it's also in the way that I change the profession as well. Um, and it's also being a person in the room that's constantly pushing for those ideals, those ethoses that we've kind of heralded um, as a society as being important. Um, and so it was very important for me while kind of looking into where would be a perfect fit. Frontwise is a place that also heralds those same and similar ideals and it'd be already established as part of the firm culture. So what I was doing in is tying into an existing network or an existing framework and helping refine and move the agenda forward, but not feeling the need to um, convince uh, my, my team, my leadership that there was an, an actual issue. And so I, I really proudly hold the title architect activist because I wanted to 
be a signifier to both professional uh, firm owners as well as um, young professionals that that is an authentic and accurate title that we can also hold and be effective and be leaders in our positions and do great work at the same time that we do not necessarily need to pick, need to select whether we need to be an architect or an activist, we can actually and should be able to do both. Yeah, absolutely. So so you're saying that being a, at Ajay or Adaje, I'm not sure how uh, we can get it. We'll get into his work later because I'm a big fan. Um, <clears throat> uh, you're saying that basically he, you know, at, at that firm in particular, you know, it's it's part of the culture and therefore you're you're expanding on that culture. So let's then kind of take the opposing view of that. Right. So that would that would sort of you know, say that in a lot of other cultures that doesn't exist in architecture firms. So how do we then uh, begin to promote that in those other architecture firms where, you know, you know, we may not have an activist um, uh, architect or or someone where those kind of things are. I think, listen, in general, in our profession, it is something important. It is a target. It is the way that we're moving. And I think it's there's an awareness of it for sure. But I think there's confusion as to how to get there. So how do you think a firm, and, and I can't say like mine because we, we also have a very similar culture, uh, but there's plenty of firms out there that don't. Like, let's be honest. Um, how do we get you know, those firms to um, to get someone like yourself or inspire someone in there to, to step up and, and kind of take the, take the lead on those things? That's a really tough question because it feels like for firms who at this point in time that still does not prioritize or um, think diversity, equity, justice, and inclusivity in the profession is a priority that would have already established some framework, um, then usually the next kind of thing that will kind of push that agenda forward is the client's request. When clients start requesting community engagement, when they start in requesting the diversity of your leadership and of their staff and who's going to be put on their team, that's really when firms is going to start understanding because it does have financial impacts to their business model and how they will be you know, competitive in the future. Um, but I guess what my point and my nuance is to say that we don't always need to be the persons in the firms that are activating and starting these things as the people who are systematically uh, burdened by a lot of the components. It's also a tough request to, for us to also be the ones to dismantle it, especially when we don't actually have the power to do so. Mm, that's a good point. And so you want your leadership to be in the mindset that aligns with that because then you're not pushing this boulder up a very steep hill you're already kind of leveraging this, this uh, established mindset. And so, you know, looking at firm leadership before applying or during interviewing process is important. Understanding if promotion procedures are public or if it's something that um, is a little bit more fuzzy and, and cloudy in terms of the process. There are just ways that you can start to understand. And how many of the firm members have uh, our firms offer memberships to AIA and to NOMA, those are very also big indicators of how much they're interested in shaping the profession um, and from that capacity beyond their portfolio, beyond the work that they're doing every day. So if this is a, a component of architecture that it resides and it's, you're passionate about, it's really about asking the right questions and align, aligning with firms that already have those established values. And yes, the, the, I am implying that some firms just simply don't prioritize those things because Running or serving as a, a volunteer takes time uh, on either of those boards and any other kind of organization that's out there. So we just have to be really mindful 
of that kind of commitment that usually when it comes from a firm side, you know, it's starting to position you as a non-billable employee and that's not where you necessarily want to be. So to enter into a firm that already has advocacy as part of their bill codes, right, means you're not asking me to volunteer my expertise on it. There's already a structure in there that is there to capture and, and track how many of us are working on advocacy stuff, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, I think of, again, I can only use myself as an example, right? Like we, one of the things that, that we really pride ourselves at my firm is for someone to come to us and say, Hey, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something that I, I want to lead and whether it is billable or non-billable, or it is something that's going to frankly cost us an investment and time and money, whatever that might be. Um, you know, we've gone in, in, at my firm, we, we've gone way above and beyond to, to, I don't want to even say accommodate that person because it's not really what it is. We're interested. Like I want, if people are passionate about something, well, damn, go do it. That would be awesome. That's only good for everybody involved, for the happiness of, of the individual, for others that come to the firm and ultimately for our, the people that work there and our clients. And that kind of permeates throughout. So I could see where there are other firms that need to kind of step up and and make it a priority. So I think that's a really good point, and I think our our, our listeners could uh, could benefit from that from for sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, I'm going to say this wrong A M H E, um, the Haitian Humanitarian Organization, um, where where you led. Um, the new school campus there, replacing the school that was destroyed in in twenty twelve in the twenty twelve earthquake. What what's your connection to Haiti? How did this kind of come about? So uh, the earthquake in January of twenty ten um, uh, that really um, had vast disastrous implications took and claimed a lot of life. Um, and it was a great ex example of how architecture, if not constructed and designed properly, can harm. Um, and in, in that, I lost a significant amount of family, a uh, family that I had just visited one month prior um, and ranged in age from in the 90s to five years old. And, um, and so part of my identity as a, a, a Haitian architect from the diaspora, right? I'm born in New York. I'm from New York, but my parents are immigrants from Haiti and I speak the language fluently. I very much identify with my culture. My name, Pascal, is very Haitian. It's a very common Haitian name. Um, and so I say all that to say is that I did not want a helicopter in per se, um, but I also wanted to have meaningful contributions and not let the investment that my parents made in and migrating here and getting me uh, the education that I have to be able to do great projects globally, like all over the world, that I not see like my country in trouble and not offer some of my skill set within there. And what was equally powerful and important is that I was also an ACE mentor at the time. ACE is a high school mentorship program uh, that has architecture, construction, and engineering as the kind of three kind of main tiers and students are paired according to their dates of availabilities mm -hmm. and develop projects together um, throughout the school year and they ultimately present it and get scholarship money. It's amazing. So like if you're kind of interested in architecture, design, construction field, it is an excellent program in high school to help kind of refine uh, your path and where, you, where you're headed. Um, so I was able to merge both my desire to be meaningful and helpful with Haiti with my mentorship at ACE 
um, and created this team, uh, Ace Team 11, if I'm not mistaken, and we created um, this design together. And it was probably really powerful also to have these students be empowered to design a school yeah. um, and pull their experiences as part of that. We had a real client, so they made real client presentations um, in that process. So that's how I got involved because, um, you know, being an architect is rare. So being a Haitian architect is even more rare. And so when things happen, uh, you know, there were some projects that wanted um, my lens on it. And I felt like the only way that I could do it with that full capacity is with it with an amazing team of high school kids that also uh, did the the job of, of teaching them about architecture as well. Yeah, that's great. We, we participated in the ACE program as well. Um, and we have for as long as I can remember, honestly, even uh, my prior firm, HLW, participated in it as well. Um, talk to a little bit about that. How do you, how do we get other firms to participate in ACE? Is there a, a, a process in doing that? Well, as you know, with par- participating in ACE, um, part of the challenge is that it's all volunteer work, right? You're, I mean, in terms of your team has to be strong. If it's only one or two members of your firm doing ACE, then it becomes this Herculean task that really takes up a good amount of time prepping every week and making sure the students are learning and so on and so forth. Uh, when you have more volunteers internally, it just becomes a lighter lift, right? You know, and so really it's about establishing a commitment on the firm side of who's actually going to participate in the ACE programming it's actually having from leaders say, hey, Christian, I think you should represent us here in this ACE program, not just put it on the office intranet. Because if I'm now empowered by the principal of my firm to represent us, then every time I need to step away from a, a, a task to get ready for ACE, or every time I have to prep the conference room or print materials, I'm not feeling like I'm doing something that I shouldn't be. I know that I've been empowered by the leadership of my organization to do so. So I really think it's about our um, the leaders of the firm kind of inspiring or kind of encouraging their staff to participate in these programs and then providing the resources that they need, whether it be conference room spaces, some good snack budgets for pizza and soda and I mean, water and fruits, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> but there's all within there that you want to make sure that that's part of it and also allow that to have uh, long-term relationships with the students as well. So I, I say all that to say, um, it really, at that point, I feel it, it's a, it's an entire firm effort, but it really needs to have the support from the leadership so that the, the staff feels empowered to commit to it in the way that those students deserve. Yeah, I always find it a lot of fun because all of a sudden there'll be like 20 students in the in the office, you know, and they're really eager and they're walking around and you're showing them different things. They get super excited and say, and then we're working on projects, you know, with them, um, which is always, always a lot of fun, you know, and I, it, it takes me back to those school days when, um, you know, I probably took it a little too seriously um, during school. And this kind of brings you back to that, which is awesome. So I, I want to talk to you about the, uh, you received the... Um, 2021 uh, Whitney M. Young Jr. Award. Tell us a little bit about this award because it's a it's a pretty big deal. I'm so hyped and excited and proud and humbled uh, to have received the 2021 AIA Whitney M. Young Jr. Award, which is an award that's given out annually to one either individual or organization that focuses on advocacy and making the profession a better place. Uh, Whitney M. Young gave a keynote at the AIA conference and basically said architects have become irrelevant in the fight for civil rights and justice um, and that we are only known for our thunderous silence in the ways that we fight for those things. Um, And so this award was established really to um, herald 
people and organizations who are starting to kind of address those concerns about how do we serve people through this great profession. Um, and there's a huge and tremendous legacy of really great architects and organizations who've done and powerful work um, that's moved that needle. And I'm really humbled to be one of those recognized in that space. And because I, um, you know, leverage my multiple hats of advocacy, whether it be my volunteering at organizations like NOMA or AIA um, and founding, finding my own uh, organization with Beyond the Built Environment, that recognition also um, gave me the uh, elevation to the AIA College of Fellows. And per their activists, I have officially become the youngest African-American to ever receive that honor in the organization's history in 167 years. So it's been an amazing and soul-shaking kind of acknowledgement. And um, it also helps position me in a way where it feels like I've just begun. And so that's why those numbers keep jumping, you know, both 400 probably when I applied for the Whitney and now we're double that. Um, but it also became a catalyst to help me um, to make, find more validity in the work that I'm doing, that it, it established and polished my reputation in the work that I was doing so that as I was hosting more, say, allowed exhibitions, as I was doing more pledges and more programming, more people felt comfortable and trusted me more to engage. So honestly, the application process was really to help move the mission forward um, and I'm just really tickled by all of the amazing uh, outcomes that have come from this really important and incredible recognition. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, your accomplishments so far and so young is extraordinary. It really is. So you should be very proud of yourself for that, uh, especially the FAIA thing. Uh, honestly, I thought that was like for 80-year-old guys, you know, uh, um, at the end of their career. So, I mean, at least that's always been been kind of how we... I mean, and I think statistically, you're not wrong, right, in terms of the age group. Um, but I think by, by me being in this space, I think it opens up, um, just the awareness of who should apply. Like, yeah. I, I think it just in general, we don't show up for a lot of things. Like we assume where we don't, um, qualify. Right. Um, but in actuality, I think if we start really looking at all the ways and, and pathways to these things, it would reveal ways that we already, um, kind of inhabit those spaces and that we should kind of keep moving forward in that area. It makes perfect sense. You referenced, um, uh, your organization beyond the build environment. Um, what exactly is that? You said 883, um, that you've showcased. How does that go? How do you, how do you come up with this idea? And then what is it? Sure. So, um, I actually started in 2017 with my first Say It Loud exhibition at the Center for Architecture in New York and Say It Loud is a traveling activation that elevates the work and identity of women and people of color in that New York one, we had 22 amazing diverse designers. The concept is to see our faces. So on the tags underneath the projects is not just our names, but our beautiful headshot that you can see clear across the room. Here are our voices. We have video testimonials on in the gallery where the different designers are speaking about their experience as a diverse designer in the profession. And then feel our impact, which is the work on the wall, which is what, how we want you to be to judge us anyway, right? Of course. And so collectively... That exhibition was so profound uh, and had such a great impact that someone from the United Nations happened to see the exhibition and invited me to exhibit at the UN the year following. And um, having that kind of exposure was also incredibly phenomenal. And they offered me an opportunity to speak at the opening ceremony. And so not only did I take the time to thank those who helped organize it, thank those who had already submitted, but 
created a call to action and asked that the UN help me make this a national movement. And before I got back to my seat from the podium, they're like, Pascal, we'll help you make it a global movement. Uh, and so in March 25th, 2019 was Say It Loud Day cool. and information centers globally from the UN information centers had the Say It Loud exhibition on display. And we had worked for a year to translate the exhibition into eight languages so students and uh, teachers were invited to come to those information centers and see the great work. And this was the moment where I just thought, this is so powerful. I cannot just keep showcasing the same 22 people. Shout out to those 22. I love you so much. You're super talented. But it felt like this became this moment where it needed to be a traveling activation instead. And that's why I now say it loud whenever it's displayed in a new location only the women and BIPOC designers of that location is what's featured. And currently we are, we are installing our 38th exhibition. Um, and the Great Diverse Designers Library is my online repository for anyone ever featured in any of our exhibitions. And uh, we now represent 70% of the U.S. as represented in that library, as well as 10% of the global world. So um, it's really, really great and empowering to see that. But that's just one program under the Beyond the Built Environment L umbrella. We have other components like the Say It With Media Pledge, which basically is asking media publications to commit to tracking and measuring and publishing how many women and people of color that they have in their uh, documentation and their uh, publications uh, annually and committing to increasing it by 5% until a minimum of 15% is reached, which matches the population demographics. Okay. It also commits to using great as a term that describes women and diverse designers. And why that's important <laughs> is if you search online, uh, Google online, great architects, Google banner comes up with about 50 names and faces that range from currently practicing licensed architects all the way to Raphael and Michelangelo. So it's a huge <laughs> breadth of time. And there's only one woman featured, Zaha Hadid, and zero African-Americans. So then when I went to Google's headquarters in New York, I asked them why was that the result of their search? And they said, Pascal, there's just not enough content that lists you all as great. And so therefore, part of that pledge is to call us great uh, in referencing us as architects. And that is why the library is called the Great Diverse Designers Library, because I'm challenging the SEOs and trying to create more content out there that lists us as great. And so really trying to leverage the, these media platforms to kind of move these things forward. We have a Learn Out Loud children's pop-up book, a See Out Loud uh, wow. camp, uh, which was augmented reality that functions in a way that identifies projects near you that are designed by women and people of color that you as a person can draw and sketch and see on the building or on the structure at one-to-one -one scale. Um, and so we've just really started to think about the full pipeline of kind of inviting and enticing the next generation of architects into the profession and trying to create a program that really focuses in and hones in on what they would need and the appetite that would be able to bring them in. Now, when you say we, who is helping you with this? Is this all you? Do you have help? <laughs> How are you going to just put me out there like that? You're going to put me on blast. Uh, so yeah, I would say, yes, I speak French. We, we, we. Okay. So essentially 90% of it is me, but I would say over the last year or so, especially during COVID when things started to really expand and get a bit more aggressive in terms of the amount of people we were collaborating with, we were able to build an actual team of volunteers that really gets activated sure. for 
um, different programmings along the way. So I definitely now have a team, but I'll probably say like a year ago, I'd have been like, yeah, it's just me <laughs> using the, using the we word, but I've learned to delegate. I've learned to it's mentor to and I've learned to leverage my resources and get help, which has really has just expanded my capacity uh, to do more and has helped me even organize a bit more. So we have systems in place that allows us to move yeah. uh, better. It is amazing to learn to delegate is an art form. It's uh, It takes a long time. I'm still learning. It's been years and years. I'm still learning, but you do. it does actually make you better. Um, you just have to figure it out along the way. So let, let's talk a little bit and back up a little bit about just the architectural education in general and why there are not m- more minorities and women in the in the architectural educational system. And I, I you know, I think about and I, I've talked about this on the podcast before with, with several other guests. And, I, you know, I, I'm always kind of trying to reflect on on why. Right. And I feel like, you know, when you're when you're young you know, and you're, it doesn't matter what, what your background is, rich, poor, black, white, you know, it it doesn't matter at all. But when you're a little kid, you have no fear of being an artist and being creative. You can scribble on paper and show it to your parents or your aunt and uncle, and it's just scribbles. And you just think it's the most amazing thing you've created. Right. And then you, uh, you, you scribble in the sand, whatever it might be, there's always, you're just super creative. And then somewhere along the way that like chips away your confidence in, well, maybe I'm really not that creative. Maybe that art piece of art I just drew wasn't that good. Or someone says to you, like, what is that? You know, um, somewhere though, there are, there are plenty that, you know, especially architects and designers that persevere through that. Right. And they get, you know, they, be, they want to become architects or, or designers or whatever that might be. Where do you think the education, you know, the architectural education, or even just kind of coming up, um, fails on on the for the the diversity side of things. Where 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 can that do better? How do we keep people interested in the arts and in architecture and design so that they want to be architects and get to college and do all that stuff? Does that make sense? It does, and I think you know you know we talked about pipeline earlier and just kind of identifying different groups and what are they needs to kind of pull forward. So when we talk about Elementary and small kids, we're thinking about NOMA's Project Pipeline Camp. We're thinking about high school students. We're talking about ACE mentoring um, and also K-12 programs that the AIA also functions or have puts out. But I wanted to say that um, being president-elect of NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects, has allowed me uh, an opportunity to sit in a position of power and a position of collaboration with the other five anchor institutions that really hold the profession um, life and, 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 and journey through, right? And so with that, we're able to have those poignant conversations, but also get statistics and facts and data from them specifically explaining what are some of the challenges so that collectively we can start strategizing on ways to solve that. And so with that, when we think about when it comes to, let's say, gender and women, when it comes to school, uh, there's typically a 50-50 split between women and, and, and men in schools of architecture upon graduation. Um, and it's actually when you do the first five years that there's a significant drop in women in the profession. And that's typically led because in that timeline, um, life is starting to happen. People are getting engaged, getting married, having children. Now I didn't say just women are doing these things. We're both doing these things, but, but the trajectory of a woman's professional career completely changes, uh, when, uh, they're in an architecture firm, 
when they're doing the same things that their male counterparts are doing as well, right? And so women being brilliant, you know, and doing the great work that they do and committed are not necessarily just staying home and hanging out with babies. I mean, some are, and shout outs, that's amazing as well. But also some of them are getting scooped up by other industries that are paying them their value, their worth, and putting them in positions of power where they're flourishing and like changing it, especially when it comes to tech world. And so we need to be careful that this, the women that we're losing is, is that they're gaming it in under in other industries. The women are still flourishing and finding ways to persevere because that's, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say all that to say that that level of issues or uh, things that are challenging for women is not necessarily the same of what's happening for the people of color, but it's still yielding similar results. And that's why um, my Beyond the Built Environment organization focuses on both, right? And that's why I say diverse professionals, women and BIPOC designers, because there are different issues, but it's yielding us not being in the profession. When it comes to um, people of color or even communities that are socioeconomically kind of challenged, you're going to find it's harder to get students interested for a few reasons. A, there's a huge time investment. The level of education, the years of education that is required to become a licensed architect is quite uh, exhaustive. And when you graduate and you have your degree, you're making salaries that is not comparable with other professions that have similar years of professional experience. And you're coming out with a lot and incredible amount of debt because typically if you're coming from a, a space that doesn't have strong financial history and backing, you're taking out more and more loans to participate in this realm. So even studying the profession of architecture is a position of privilege. Then, uh, you know, you have the cost and the time. It's right? a year longer too. It's not. It's yeah. Not just so, years, and then, so, five. and there's five year degrees, which is um, actually becoming rare and it's starting to be more like four plus two, four plus three degrees. So we've expanded the time. So now if I'm going to school and I'm thinking, man, I got to do an extra year, extra two years, that's two years extra of debt, two years extra of material. That's two years extra of housing. It, it, that's two years that I'm not creating income that I can re- bring back to my family and help support and lift them up, right? And so there's financial challenges, there's time commitments that's very challenging. And then once you're in the profession, there are systematic issues that make being in the profession unwelcoming, right? Makes it oppressive. And so I've gone through this gauntlet and now that I'm here and now I'm still being told I'm not good enough or I'm only being put on the the parts of the projects that are not glamorous, I'm not, you know, being really advocated for. I'm not being mentored. All of those things give a reason for us. Like, why would that be the value proposition as a high school junior trying to figure out what I want to do? Why would I go in that path, right? And so it's not just simply that um, kids of color or kids from different backgrounds don't know about architecture. I actually try to argue the opposite. I think they know a lot about architecture, but because we don't typically serve them as a community. They see us as the villain. Architecture and design is an amazing thing when things are designed for you. But when things are designed against you, when you see construction or scaffolding, you're seeing the noise, the rodents, the debris, the, the, the rerouting. And then when the project is revealed, it's usually erasing your history. It's usually done for a different community to come in. It's a signifier that you're not welcome. It's a signifier that you are all of a sudden and your cultural traditions is a menace and now police need to be involved. It becomes like, oh man, when I see construction, 
it's a negative thing. So why would I want to be a part of that to change it, right? So it's a large and complex issue that's not just a matter of exposure and mentorship. That is also really powerful and important as part of the the solution and the part of the formula of, of getting to the solution, but it's not the, in totality. And I just want to be clear that it's not just on the people we're looking to pull in. It's also the way that we operate as a profession and the way that we operate in the way that we yield uh, getting architects in place. And so by working with NCARB and understanding the multiple and diverse ways of get past to licensure and understanding that there's 17 states in this country that doesn't even require an architectural degree to become a licensed architect. All of these things are important to know because as a student might say, hey, I'm in high school, my parents need financial help. I can't go to a you know six you know uh, six figure in debt architectural degree, but I really love architecture. The answer had been historically, sorry, we can't help you. Now we're like, oh well, in these states, you can work at a firm, get this amount of years of of, of apprenticeship, you know, sit for your exams, and you can still become licensed. So just having these different approaches or schools that have an IPAL program right. where you during your education you're also creating and hitting all the requirements to become an architect. So you're graduating not only with your degree, but with your license as well. Yeah. I think and those so, are even better actually for the profession in general. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I just say all that to say it's a, it's a lot. And there's many reasons why and just different communities need different things and that we just need to be very attuned and uh, interactive with those communities to ask those questions of what are they that are challenging them. And then we can work strategically to really move that out of the way for them. And so what, when did you discover and realize you wanted to be an architect? I was um, 12 years old, uh, paint, painting a mural at the Pominock uh, Community Camp across the street from Queens College in Queens. And I decided to do a jungle gym with a multicultural community. I've been on brand since, since back then. It's impressive. Um, and a person walked by and said, wow, you draw straight lines without a ruler. That's a great skill for an architect to have. And just kept walking. And I promise you, if this neighbor or passerby, or I don't know how you call them, um, didn't just have an out loud thought, I don't know when architecture would have really ever been offered to me as a path to consider and to move forward. But once he said that, that became my answer. Oh, I'm going to be an architect when I grow up. There's nobody in my life that is going to be surprised in terms of that this is the profession that I ultimately uh, got into because it's what I had been proclaiming. When I got into high school, my mom signed me up for a What's an Architect seminar at One Penn Plaza. Um, and we would go there weekly and they would take us to construction sites, newly oh, constructed cool. projects, architecture firms, model shops. Um, and it was so great because you got to see and experience what it really was to be an architect. Um, and so I felt that much more confident. She was trying to show like, hey, this is not really for you, but it like reinforced it for me. And even in that program, I was the only girl out of the I think 30 students that was there. Um, so the disparities or the differences in, in diversity was very evident even to me um, from a high school standpoint, but it didn't, it didn't uh, deter me from pursuing that path. Well, I can't see you with your personality, really anything deterring you. So yeah. I, that, well, all that, that is also new too, right? <laughs> like, in, and I say all the time in high school, I actually was really quiet, oh, really? like very, very quiet. And um, you would, it was constantly like, Pascal, say something, Pascal, say something, Pascal, say something. Along the way, I started talking. I was like, oh, I like this. And then just kind of kept going. But honestly, I didn't really get my voice till about midway through high school um, in terms of this kind of 
pushing my uh, thoughts forward and feelings and thoughts on things. So well, tell me a little bit about your, your, your backstory. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Sure. So my mom is an accountant. My dad is a pediatrician. My stepmom is a dietitian, and my stepdad is a yellow cab driver. Okay. Um, and uh, we all are, you know, grow up in, in Queens slash Long Island, Almont area. Uh, Cambria Heights is where I was raised. Um, went to um, Sacred, Heart, uh, 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 Sacred Heart School in Cambria Heights and then went to the Mary Lewis Academy in, uh, in Jamaica States, for, which was an all-girls Catholic preparatory high school. Um, and uh, I have nine siblings. Oh, wow. I'm the second oldest. Uh, which I think starts to explain why I'm such a rule follower and really silly at the same time, because I needed to connect with all of them, no matter the age, um, but be a good example for them at the same time. Um, I'm very close with my family. I'm also a proud mom uh, of a brilliant, brilliant six-year-old who is just the best. I just had his parent-teacher conference like right before, and he got straight A's and they applauded. Uh, the great work that myself and Matthew has done in raising him. So it's, it's really spectacular in terms of who I am. Um, and I, you know, I say that at the root of who I am as an architect, and I mean that in the most beautiful, positive way. Um, and I just really want to make sure that if there's other people out there um, that have an inclination to this profession, that they see a path forward, a path, a beautiful path of support and of love and of mentorship that welcomes them into the profession other rather than the path that most of us has experienced. Yeah. Yeah. So well, along those lines, um, I, I love asking this question. If you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about your fellow architects? What annoys me about my fellow architects? I think um, we think too internally. We're constantly thinking about how we are seen, how we are framed, how, how the project is coming out through our vision. Um, and in actuality, our profession is a, is a position of servant, of being a servant to our community and to our society. Um, and I think we need to be more outward facing and to engage in a meaningful way and establish value in the voice of the community that's impacted by our projects. And when I say that, I do not just mean the client or the person who cuts the check. I mean, everyone who's impacted by our structure, whether that be people who are occupying the building, working in the building, living in the building, or even just walking by, um, all their voices and um, values need to be considered in the way that we design and consider and, and create great architecture. Um, so I would say the, the number one thing that I'm annoyed about is how much we think about ourselves and not a, as much I think we should be pushing more outward and thinking, how can we serve society more? I like that. I like that. Um, so as we wrap up here, is there anything we haven't covered um, that you'd like? Um, just our social media handles. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I'm on IG as Pascal Sablon, but also we have the Beyond the Built Environment uh, IG page, which is called at Beyond the Built. And every week, a different diverse designer takes it over and talks about their journey, their history, their work, their legacy. They follow the similar concept for the Say Loud exhibition. So see our faces, hear our voices, feel our impact um, is what's being displayed. And that's been really profound. Also, we're almost at 200 various designers being featured uh, globally. Um, and it's cultivated this really powerful community of people who care to hear our stories. And it's also diversified the pathways and the ways that we see how we impact the built world So and the profession. So I highly recommend some support in, in following that. 
and on our website, Beyond the Built Environment uh, or Beyond the Built um, dot com, we have the Great Diverse Designers Library that is constantly growing. Um, I highly recommend that you also uh, have fun, explore, and enjoy all the virtual exhibitions as well as the physical exhibitions as they pop up all over the world. That's great. Congratulations. Well, Pascal, thank you, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Um, and thanks for honestly helping push the industry forward. I think you're an important voice and uh, it was a pleasure having you. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much to you and your team who's working so hard behind the scenes uh, to make this come together and creating a platform for us to have these important discussions and conversations. You please let me know how I can ever support you moving forward. And please, please, please um, keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you. You're the best.